Chapter forty one of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter forty one. Next morning I arose betimes and equipped myself without delay. I had eight or ten miles to walk, so far from the town being the residence of these people, and I forthwith repaired to their dwelling. The persons whom I desired to see were known to me only by name and by their place of abode. It was a mother and her three daughters to whom I now carried the means not only of competence but riches, means which they, no doubt, had long ago despaired of regaining, and which, among all possible messengers, one of my age and guise would be the least suspected of being able to restore. I arrived through intricate ways at eleven o'clock at the house of Mrs. Morris. It was a neat dwelling, in a very fanciful and rustic style, in the bosom of a valley which, when decorated by the verdure and blossoms of the coming season, must possess many charms. At present it was naked and dreary. As I approached it through a long avenue, I observed two female figures, walking arm and arm and slowly to and fro in the path in which I now was. These, said I, are daughters of the family. Graceful, well-dressed, fashionable girls they seem at this distance. May they be deserving of the good tidings which I bring. Seeing them turn towards the house, I mended my pace that I might overtake them and request their introduction of me to their mother. As I more nearly approached, they again turned, and, perceiving me, they stood as if in expectation of my message. I went up to them. A single glance cast at each made me suspect that they were not sisters, but somewhat to my disappointment there was nothing highly prepossessing in the countenance of either. They were what is every day met with, though less embellished by brilliant drapery and turban, in markets and streets. An air somewhat haughty, somewhat supercilious, lessened still more their attractions. These defects, however, were nothing to me. I inquired of her that seemed to be the elder of the two for Mrs. Morris. "'She is indisposed,' was the cold reply." "'That is unfortunate. Is it not possible to see her?' "'No,' with still more gravity. I was somewhat at a loss how to proceed. A pause ensued. At length the same lady resumed, "'What's your business? You can leave your message with me.' "'With nobody but her, if she be not very indisposed.' "'She is very indisposed,' interrupted she, peevishly. "'If you cannot leave your message, you may take it back again, for she must not be disturbed.' This was a singular reception. I was disconcerted and silent. I knew not what to say. "'Perhaps,' I at last observed, "'some other time.' "'No,' with increasing heat, "'no other time. She is more likely to be worse than better.' "'Come, Betsy,' said she, taking hold of her companion's arm, and, hying into the house, shut the door after her and disappeared. I stood at the bottom of the steps, confounded at such strange and unexpected treatment. I could not withdraw till my purpose was accomplished. After a moment's pause I stepped to the door and pulled the bell. A negro came, of a very unpropitious aspect, and opening the door looked at me in silence. 
To my question, was Mrs. Morris to be seen, he made some answer in a jargon which I could not understand, but his words were immediately followed by an unseen person within the house. "'Mrs. Morris can't be seen by anybody. Come in, Cato, and shut the door.' This injunction was obeyed by Cato without ceremony. Here was a dilemma. I came with ten thousand pounds in my hands— to bestow freely on these people, and such was the treatment I received. I must adopt, said I, a new mode. I lifted the latch without a second warning, and, Cato having disappeared, went into a room, the door of which chanced to be open on my right hand. I found within the two females whom I had accosted in the portico. I now addressed myself to the younger— this intrusion, when I have explained the reason of it, will, I hope, be forgiven. I come, madam. Yes, interrupted the other, with a countenance suffused by indignation. I know very well whom you come from, and what it is that prompts this insolence, but your employer shall see that we have not sunk so low as he imagines. Cato! Bob! I say! My employer, madam! I see you labor under some great mistake. I have no employer. I come from a great distance. I come to bring intelligence of the utmost importance to your family. I come to benefit and not to injure you. By this time Bob and Cato, two sturdy blacks, entered the room. Turn this person, said the imperious lady, regardless of my explanations, out of the house. "'Don't you hear me?' she continued, observing that they looked one upon the other and hesitated. "'Surely, madam,' said I, "'you are precipitate. You are treating like an enemy one who will prove himself your mother's best friend.' "'Will you leave the house?' she exclaimed, quite beside herself with anger. "'Villains, why don't you do as I bid you?' The blacks looked upon each other as if waiting for an example. Their habitual deference for everything white, no doubt, held their hands from what they regarded as a profanation. At least Bob said, in a whining, beseeching tone, "'Why, Missy, Massa Buckra want a go for do. Dan he want a go for we.' The lady now burst into tears of rage. She held out her hand menacingly. "'Will you leave the house?' "'Not willingly,' said I, in a mild tone. "'I came too far to return with the business that brought me unperformed. "'I am persuaded, madam, you mistake my character and my views. "'I have a message to deliver your mother "'which deeply concerns her and your happiness if you are her daughter. "'I merely wished to see her and leave her with a piece of important news, "'news in which her fortune is deeply interested.' The words had a wonderful effect upon the young lady. Her anger was checked. "'Good God!' she exclaimed. "'Are you Watson?' "'No, I am only Watson's representative, and could come to do all that Watson could do if he were present. She was now importunate to know my business. "'My business lies with Mrs. Morris. Advertisements which I have seen direct me to her and to this house.' and to her only shall I deliver my message. Perhaps, said she with a face of apology, I have mistaken you. Mrs. Morris is my mother. She is really indisposed, but I can stand in her place on this occasion. 
"'You cannot represent her in this instance. "'If I cannot have access to her now, I must go, "'and shall return when you are willing to grant it.' "'Nay,' replied she, "'she is not, perhaps, so very sick, "'but that I will go, and see if she will admit you.' "'So saying, she left me for three minutes, "'and, returning, said her mother wished to see me. "'I followed upstairs at her request, "'and, entering an ill-furnished chamber,' found, seated in an armchair, a lady seemingly in years, pale and visibly infirm. The lines of her countenance were far from laying claim to my reverence. It was too much like the daughter's. She looked at me, at my entrance, with great eagerness, and said in a sharp tone, "'Pray, friend, what is it that you want with me? Make haste, tell your story, and be gone.' My story is a short one and easily told. Amos Watson was your agent in Jamaica. He sold an estate belonging to you and received the money. He did, said she, attempting ineffectually to rise from her seat, and her eyes beaming with a significance that shocked me. He did, the villain, and purloined the money to the ruin of me and my daughters. But if there be justice on earth, it will overtake him. I trust I shall have the pleasure one day. I hope to hear he's hanged. Well, but go on, friend. He did sell it, I tell you. He sold it for ten thousand pounds, I resumed, and invested this sum in bills of exchange. Watson is dead. These bills came into my hands. I was lately informed by the public papers who were the real owners, and have come from Philadelphia with no other view than to restore them to you. There they are, continued I, placing them in her lap, entire and untouched. She seized the papers, and looked at me and her daughter by turns, with an air of one suddenly bewildered. She seemed speechless, and growing suddenly more ghastly pale, leaned her head back upon the chair. The daughter screamed and hastened to support the languid parent, who difficultly articulated, "'Oh, I am sick, sick to death. Put me on the bed.' I was astonished and affrighted at this scene. Some of the domestics of both colors entered and gazed at me with surprise. Involuntarily I withdrew and returned to the room below, into which I had first entered and which I now found deserted. I was for some time at a loss to guess at the cause of these appearances. At length it occurred to me that joy was the source of the sickness that had seized Mrs. Morris. The abrupt recovery of what had probably been deemed irretrievable would naturally produce this effect on a mind of a certain texture. I was deliberating whether to stay or go when the daughter entered the room and, after expressing some surprise at seeing me, whom she supposed to have retired, told me that her mother wished to see me again before my departure. In this request there was no kindness. All was cold, supercilious, and sullen. I obeyed the summons without speaking. I found Mrs. Morris seated in her armchair, much in her former guise. Without desiring me to be seated, or relaxing aught in her asperity of looks and tones, "'Pray, friend, how did you come by these papers?' "'I assure you, madam, they were honestly come by,' answered I, sedately and with half a smile. 
but if the whole is there that was missing, the mode and time in which they came to me is a matter of concern only to myself. Is there any deficiency? I am not sure. I don't know much of these matters. There may be less. I dare say there is. I shall know that soon. I expect a friend of mine every minute who will look them over. I don't doubt you can give a good account of yourself. I doubt not, but I can, to those who have a right to demand it. In this case, curiosity must be very urgent indeed before I shall consent to gratify it. You must know this is a suspicious case. Watson, to be sure, embezzled the money. To be sure, you are his accomplice. Certainly, said I, my conduct on this occasion proves that. What I have brought to you of my own accord, what I have restored to you, fully and unconditionally, it is plain Watson embezzled, and that I was aiding in the fraud. To restore what was never stolen always betrays the thief. To give what might be kept without suspicion is without doubt. Without doubt, errant knavery. To be serious, madam, in coming thus far for this purpose I have done enough, and must now bid you farewell. Nay, don't go yet, I have something more to say to you. My friend, I'm sure, will be here presently. There he is, noticing a peal upon the bell. Polly, go down and see if that's Mr. Summers. If it is, bring him up. The daughter went. I walked to the window, absorbed in my own reflections. I was disappointed and dejected. The scene before me was the unpleasing reverse of all that my fancy, while coming hither, had foreboded. I expected to find virtuous indigence and sorrow lifted by my means to affluence and exultation. I expected to witness the tears of gratitude and the caresses of affection. What had I found? nothing but sordidness, stupidity, and illiberal suspicion. The daughter stayed much longer than the mother's patience could endure. She knocked against the floor with her heel. A servant came up. "'Where's Polly, you slut? It was not you, hussy, that I wanted. It was her.' "'She is talking in the parlor with a gentleman.' "'Mr. Summers, I suppose, hey, fool? Run with my compliments to him, wench.' "'Tell him, please, walk up.' "'It is not Mr. Summers, ma'am.' "'No. Who then, saucebox? What gentleman can have anything to do with Polly?' "'I don't know, ma'am.' "'Who said you did, impertinence? Run and tell her I want her this instant.' The summons was not delivered, or Polly did not think proper to obey it. Full ten minutes of thoughtful silence on my part— and of muttered vexation and impatience on that of the old lady, elapsed before Polly's entrance. As soon as she appeared, the mother began to complain bitterly of her inattention and neglect. But Polly, taking no notice of her, addressed herself to me, and told me that a gentleman below wished to see me. I hastened down, and found a stranger of a plain appearance in the parlour. His aspect was liberal and ingenuous, and I quickly collected from his discourse that this was the brother-in-law of Watson and the companion of his last voyage. End of chapter 41